welcome to Associated, the podcast where we're making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and today I have the pleasure of co-hosting with the lovely Francesca. Hello, it's been a wee while since it's been just you and me. I know, I've missed you Lois. Oh, me too, me too. Well, so we're really excited, aren't we, about this episode. It's a slightly off the wall affair where we're breaking tradition and we're going to interview a partner. Yeah. But what better time to do it than in a bonus episode? Well, exactly. <laughs> we are joined today by Matt Pennycard, who's a partner at Aid Adventures. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, I'll um, do my best to be off the wall for you. <laughs> okay, very good. We'll hold you to that. Um, cool. So let's do a bit of an introduction, Matt. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about Ada and the journey that you've had up to now in VC? Sure. Um, I basically have been in private company investing in one guise or another for, it terrifies me to say, nearly 20 years. You know, I started out in 2002 with Octopus when it was a startup. I was the second or third hire in Octopus. And then I had a stint, I like to say I did my time, <laughs> I had a stint in private equity, which I also slightly flippantly say I wasn't very good at, and, and found my way to early stage tech investing purely or exclusively. I went exclusive with the early stage tech market in probably around 2008 um, and about 50% of my time since then uh, has been investing in the US and moved back to the UK about six years ago I think uh, and stayed in early stage tech but in the UK so I've had a um, pretty kind of monotonous career in that regard um, bounced around in different industries and it's taken me uh, a lot of really long time I think to find my home and my home is as you point out Lois Aid Adventures which is a firm that I co-founded with Czech Warner a couple of years ago now and raised our first fund, which we announced in December of 2019. The most interesting bit to me about my own career is, is how long it's taken to finally find the bit that does feel like home. And that's partly because venture is such an apprentice, long-term industry, long-term business. It really takes ages to feel, frankly, to feel any good at it actually and I think once you start to think you are good at it you're probably not very good at it um but and I think and I think also one of the things I'm sure we're going to end up talking about today is is setting up your own your own fund your own business um and they are two separate things by the way the fund and the business but yeah I think I feel finally sort of relaxed and really enjoying the fact that you know I know enough to be dangerous I've got an amazing business partner who you know I love and trust and respect and, I'm, and I feel like we're, we've got a strategy that is of the moment and is fitting and there's a pull and people want the product. Uh, I'm not fighting, pushing the water uphill. And so I guess a combination of things, experiencing the industry, finding the right person to do it with uh, and, and landing on a strategy that we believe in with all our hearts. But it has taken me a very long time to, to get there. Mm. Yeah, I think that's... Um... It's quite an interesting point, isn't it? Sort of time and how we perceive it, not just in terms of, you know, you hear a lot about the long feedback loop in VC and that it will take however many years to know if you're any good at it. But actually the side of that that you don't hear so much is around career progression and maybe about you, how you phrase it, finding your home, finding what you like to do and the people that you like to do it with. Um, and I guess that's what I hope we'll focus a bit more on this episode is that journey, not just for you, but with the people that you've worked with and particularly with Czech, who I believe you originally hired as an associate. That's kind of how you got to know each other. Is that right? Yeah, I, I met Czech kind of super randomly. 
And actually, she sort of hijacked a meeting that I was doing. Um, so this is, I think, in 2014. I just came out to the UK. I was working for an asset management firm uh, called Downing, running a division called Downing Ventures. And you, I heard you had Kathy and, and Michael on recently, who I just absolutely love. And I went to see a company. I went to see a retail software business. And this young lady was in the meeting that I wasn't expecting, and it was Czech. And uh, the founder of this software business was sort of mentoring Jack about how she might get into the tech industry. She was in advertising at the time and she sort of hijacked the meeting and, and kind of thrust her CV in front of me, which, you know, I I'd spent a long time living in New York, right? I'm used to people in my face. <laughs> like I, I'm completely <laughs> comfortable with that. And I thought it was great that she did that. And Jack was just what I was looking for in that she wasn't me. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't a man from a finance background. That was the extent to which I wanted to work with somebody else. Um, it says if I could profile them, just not me. And so we spent about six months kind of talking about the VC business. And in the end, I was supported very, very, you know, greatly by Downing to, to hire her. And, and essentially said, I'll kind of do an apprenticeship deal with you in terms of I'll teach you the venture business such that I am able to do that over a kind of two year period. You know, if you can handle it, you're going to, you're going to get a lot of rope. You're going to get more, ex more deal experience than I think anywhere else in the UK at the time, because we were probably the UK's most active seed investor at that point in time. And that bore out, you know, Czech joined and we had, we probably had two or three years together and we, we did 35, you know, 35 to 40 investments. And so that was the deal. I said, you probably won't like me very much at the end of that two year period, because you're going to be at least just a massive amount of work. And I don't think I'm a very good manager. I'm not a great, I'm not going to be great at managing your career. And, and I really mean that. It's not being um, self-appreciating. But Czech is a very self-starting, ambitious person. Um, so that kind of worked quite well. She was able to handle a lot of rope. She learned the venture business inside out. She did, she was running deals. You know, she, she kind of learned all the legal documentation and, you know, all the valuation, everything you've got to learn to kind of be be qualified if you will and and that, that's kind of how that happened what ha what also happened in the background is that we just built an amazing complementary well what now is a is a completely equal partnership at ada uh, with 50 50 entire way through the stack and um we complement each other hugely and this is not an advert for ada ventures but that's why big part of why ada was able to successfully raise was that we actually by pure chance met each other and worked very well together and built a partnership out of that that has, you know, in a very short period of time done reasonably well. Mm. And I want to put a pin in raising the fund for Ada and how you did that. But so before we get onto that, I just want to backpedal a little bit. So, so you met Czech, she thrust the CV in front of you and you said, fine, you can come and work for me, but you probably won't like me. Let's see how we get on. I'm just interested in like a bit more of the detail in between that and Ada. Like, what would you say happened? You know, did she prove herself in certain ways? Do you think that you changed? I'm interested in that partner associate mm. relationship and kind of how it works. Cause we've spoken to a few people on the podcast from the associate perspective. I'm keen to get your view as well. Yeah. I mean, I think we were in the context of, we were both employees of a larger firm and we were in a very small division of that firm with its own identity and so you know, we were given a lot of uh, leeway and responsibility which was amazing and i was able to pass a lot of that on to check as she proved herself and why was i able to answer your question lois like why was i able to why did i want to do that um i think i just saw magic inside check basically i just saw like something incredible you know and my job is to try to find that in people right so 
I hope I'm reasonable at not make many mistakes, but I hope that I can do that to some extent. And I saw that in check. And what it ultimately comes down to is definitely trust. And I trusted her as a person and I trusted the quality of her output. And that's obviously very measurable. And then you move into a secondary mode, which is, wow, what could this become? What could this person become? Um, do I want to be a part of that? Or do I just want to help this individual because you kind of become friends? And there's been a bit of both of those things with Czech and me. And I think that we've got such an authentic relationship because actually I care about her as a person above everything else. And I, you know, when we left Downing, we, you know, had some real kind of um, questions about what could we do together? You know, what I've spoken to other people about, you don't develop that level of friendship with people that you work with. So take it with that grain of salt is what I'm trying to say. Well, certainly I, I approached it with Czech, but look, what is the right thing for the next stage of your career? You know, very roughly at that point in time, Czech was probably 29 and I was probably 39, 40. I'm trying to set myself sound younger than I really am. I'm just about to turn 42. So, <laughs> so, but very roughly. Spring I, chicken, yeah. spring chicken. Right, exactly. Thank you. And I, um, I had two kids, you know, different life stage to Czech, right? And so I was very aware of, What's the right thing for my friend Czech? Is it to go to another firm? Is it to go to, you know, pick pick your name? And I think she could have got a, a job, you know, a principal level, partner level job at, at those firms. Again, trying to focus on like what's useful and interesting for the, for your listeners. Do you want to raise a fund or not? And it turned out to be the right thing for Czech. I, I suspect that is not the norm. It was easy, much easier for me to say that's what I wanted to do. I was at a stage when I was kind of ready to back myself again, rightly or wrongly, but I wanted to back myself and see what I was capable of doing in an independent environment uh, and was prepared to fail or succeed at that. I didn't know any investors, but, you know, happy to go and give that a go. But but Czech was at a very different stage. And I think it was much more of a career risk for Czech to try and do that than it was for me. She would have been very aware about that because Czech is your classics, you know, overachiever, you know, she did very well at school, first class degree from Cambridge, top graduate program in the ad industry etc etc so she's on a treadmill that i that i've never been on and and certainly if i was on any elements of that i was long gone by the time i got to this point so it was a very different decision for both of us i suspect yeah i can see that and i think you know it's really important that you point out that your story with czech is not necessarily the norm and we're not we won't try to pretend it is i think from all the interviews that we've done we kind of know that usually the associate path is maybe a two to three year gig at a fund and then kind of move on. And often the advice would be go and work in a startup, do something else before you can progress up the ladder. But I guess what I'm really interested in actually now is that, and you touched on this about seeing potential in new recruits. So you said you saw magic in check. And I think, you know, a lot's happened in recruitment, particularly within the VC space recently. That means that actually, a lot of the junior ranks are filled with really diverse, really high potential people, way different to what you see at slightly higher ranks, kind of like mm. you were saying, the mm. kind of, you know, older guys who've maybe worked in finance, something like that. That's just not really what we see anymore, I don't think. But what I'm interested in is what happens when they start to have that conversation that you and Czech started to have when you thought about leaving Downing and you thought about what's right for you. And will those people be happy with the two-year gig to become a partner to do something else or will they take a path more like yours of 
starting their own fund what what's your take mm. on that what what kind of trends mm. are you seeing gosh that's such an interesting question the main trend i'm seeing right now is disruption and dislocation and therefore therein lies opportunity if you come at it with an entrepreneurial mindset no one knows particularly if they're an entrepreneur before they're an entrepreneur because it's word that's bandied around the whole time all it really means i think to, to my mind is do you have an appetite for risk and generally speaking if you do have an appetite for risk there's some kind of privilege that you have that enables you to do that you've got a safety net or a level of confidence or something that allows you to want to take that risk and you know check wrote a brilliant medium piece about her privilege and in in, uh, in our opportunity to raise our fund um and so i point point people to that uh, yeah when when you announced that ada um had raised that i i read that article and i just thought wow like i don't think i've ever read anything like that before so yeah huge congratulations to to being so transparent about the process because yeah i don't know how many times it's been clapped but it deserves 10 times more mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, so, you're so nice and it that's our commitment at ada is to is to try to do things openly so I do, we're not going to shy away from it but I think that the trend I'm seeing is dislocation and disruption. And a lot of that is necessary. A lot of that is painful. There's friction involved in that. But therein lies opportunity. And then if you see it that way, you're probably entrepreneurial. You're probably going to, if you're in the VC context, you're probably going to want to do your own fund. And, that, and I think it's as simple as that. If you don't see it like that, and if that's a bit scarier and the kind of comfort blanket of a career is more appealing, that's completely for us who you are. Right? It's just as simple as that in my mind. And I've spoken to... You know, since we sort of you know came out as it were with ada a lot of people have got in touch and said how do i do that how did you do that can you help me do this and and i and i think it's that leap really um and all i can, i'm no guru on this all i can really relate to is is our personal experience of doing that and you know it was it was terrifying you know it was terrifying we put that video out there which we didn't know we were doing at the time we were just filming each other and taking pictures as a personal record of this journey and then it, we said, you know, we should just public put those out there. And so we did that again to sort of show a bit of, it's not very good, but like the raw sort of element of what we were going, you know, walking through airports at midnight, you know, after yet another like exhausting day, meeting family offices that, well, I didn't know what a family office was, particularly when we started this fundraising. And that's such a weird group of, it's so hard to like be organized <laughs> in a sales approach around it. And Czech and I just made each other laugh the whole way. Right. And so what a lot of people say, I want to do a fund. That's great. Who are you going to do it with? Some people are lone wolves and they should just, and they're great lone wolf investors and they should just be that. And that's fine. But most people are not. Most people want the support of a partner. Find somebody to do it with. It's going to take twice as long, cost twice as much than you ever dream it will do being the law of life. And so you don't really want to do that on your own, unless you genuinely are a kind of solo, you know, solo GP, solo, solo capitalist, as they're starting to be called, because in this industry, you're fortunate to probably be fairly well compensated and life is probably reasonably comfortable in terms of the basic needs. And you're in a very intellectually stimulating job and potentially fundraising is taken care of for you. Fund administration, legals and compliance are taken care of for you. You know, learning for us is we were so focused on raising the fund for that kind of 12, 15 months, whatever it was, and we were just on the road. When we raise the fund, we can have a party. When we raise the fund. We have a salary. When we raise the fund, we can write meaningful checks in this company. When we raised the fund, it was all on the come. And what we actually found is we raised this fund, amazingly, but we also kind of gave birth to a company, you know, an FCA regulated, directly authorized, 
fund management company that has five or six entities, all of which have, like, I can see everyone's going to go to sleep now, but this is the reality of raising your own fund. It's not just the fund. You have to then do all of that stuff. But today you've been enjoying people doing it for you and you haven't even valued it properly. And we've woken up to the fact that, yeah, we've actually got a business to run as well as a fund to run. And so it's like having two jobs. So that's under the sort of file under be careful what you wish for category. <laughs> and I, all of that is much easier handled if you've got a partner. Mm. Yeah, good point. And in Czech's article, which we will link to um, on our Notion page, she talks a little bit about kind of the personal costs to both of you. Could you remind us how much did it cost you to raise the fund in total? For, for us, and I'm not talking about missed salary, I'm talking about the hard costs of this. Mm-hmm. And they are, for us, getting regulated. You don't need to do that, but we were building a long-term business and took the decision to do that. So as in you have to be regulated, but you can do it under an umbrella and there are other ways of doing it. We did the direct, our company is authorised and regulated to do this. Travel. You're flying around, you know, because particularly for us, we didn't know anyone that was going to back this. So we started from scratch and, you know, we, <laughs> we should tell you some funny stories about that just to bring it to life a bit more as well. But um, it's basically, it's about 150 grand pounds. And so, and you're not earning any money as well. Neither yeah. Czech or I are rich people. Like we're, you know, in a fortunate position in many, many respects. And neither of us are rich. And so... Yeah, that's real. For just purely financially, that's real cost. And you've also yeah. got to finance your life for that whole period of time as well. And I'd say you should budget two years for this. If you want to do it, give yourself two years. And I'll tell you also, we started out amazingly, our, our friends at Seraphim Capital, we worked for Seraphim Capital oh, two, two and a half days a week, three days a week. And that was amazing. You know, it gave us a home um, and it gave us some income. And we decided after a few months, like the only way we're going to get this fund is if we go all in and we had to be seven days a week on it. And that's what we did. And again, there's a big cost. That's a massive family cost. You know, uh, you know, I've got young kids and um, I wasn't there. I was just away putting this together. And I don't want anyone like playing little violins or anything, but you've got to just be, what are the, what are the costs going to be to you? It's going to take two years and 150,000 quid. And where are you going to get that from? And that's the status quo today. And I know you want to ask about trends and where it's going and micro funds and, and other method ways of doing it, which, which can cost a lot less and you can get up and running much more quickly, I hope. Um, but that was just what we experienced. Yeah. And I think the trend towards micro funds is, is it's interesting because in a way it sounds glamorous and then another way it sounds like the hardest slog I could imagine, like going alone, in a tiny fund where management fees will be you know kind of next to nothing um must be really tough but i can see why it's appealing in terms of to go right back to what you said at the beginning who do you trust what do you love doing where's your home those things are valuable to people and i think it means that they're willing to put up with the kind of the slog of it and i also wonder if like so one of the things i wanted to ask you following on from how much did it cost to raise a fund was and and in the medium article check kind of acknowledges the privilege that that you've had what about people who who are less privileged than that who maybe are getting into vc through some of these newer focuses on diverse recruitment and that kind of stuff what happens when they get to a point where they're coming up to thinking what do they do next and if they did want to go out on their own do you have any advice for people on that i think they can call me anytime they want you know matt at adventures.com you know, 
I think one of the things Ada's done usefully with the privilege of its founders is to is to raise the fund and it got done and it's a beachhead. Our great hope is that an expectation I would say is that the next versions of Ada Ventures are, are not run by Matt and Check. You know, they're run by more diverse VCs. Right? And, and and so that's why I say give me a call because we'll help you. Like you know, we don't have capital ourselves to invest in these funds as LPs, but we're trying our best to get there. And we're trying to think about how can we support these small funds, particularly when they're coming from that sort of underprivileged position where they're not raising 30 million quid, they're raising, you know, a million pounds or whatever. How do we support that? And it's interesting that that model has come from the US where it's been a side hustle for, generally speaking, very privileged individuals who are getting privileged access because they work at name your tech company and they can do this on the side and so a two million dollar fund with a 40 grand a year uh, management fee you know it pays the admin and the legal costs in the states and that's it right um but they've got a very well paid job as a senior engineer at you know facebook or what have you that's where the model comes from and that's a very different environment from the one over here so I think there's need to be a bit more fitting for purpose if, if it's going to be successful as a model over here. But again, I would, I would very honestly say, you know, if you're, if you're a diverse investor, fancy any investor that, you know, has got obstacles in front of you as to how to raise a fund or run a fund, give me a call. Um, it's a passion of ours. Uh, and it's a responsibility and an obligation of Ada Ventures to help that community. And we are very much up for that work. We haven't really got into your thesis at Ada and obviously one of the the things that allowed you to raise capital is that you've come forward to these family offices these investors that have decided to back you and given an original story where they couldn't have placed their money anywhere else but you guys because you believe the certain vision so I'd be really curious to know like did you start tweaking it just to see like how it lands like Obviously, you're talking about diversity and presumably the people that you're pitching to, that's not necessarily at the forefront of their minds, right? Um, or were they? I'd be really curious to know. It's quite a lot of things there. No, no, that's honestly, Francesca, absolutely perfect. Because I can just tell you the chronology of how we came up with the strategy, how it changed, how it landed or didn't land in different meetings. And so if you'll indulge me, <laughs> I'll, like, I'll tell you the soup to nuts, right? Um, I mean, the, the basic headline is that Ada's core value is, is around uh, talent being evenly distributed, but access to capital not being evenly distributed. And it comes from data. If you look at the data, the only founders that are getting funded in any volume are, are white men with certain kinds of backgrounds. And that's not because the VC industry is probably racist or sexist or anything else prejudiced in any other way, necessarily. It's because of pattern matching and subconscious bias. We maybe felt that instinctively. We maybe had opinions on that a few years ago. But Diversity VC and now other organizations have shone a light on that. And, and so let me take you right back to the start of where this all came from. You know, I hired Czech in the way that I've described to you with a natural instinct for diverse inputs are gonna make me make better investment decisions. So I don't wanna hire another Matt Pennycard, right? Thank God for that. Uh, and it ended up being Czech. And she's, you know, 11 years younger than me. She's a woman, you know, coming at the world from hopefully a different enough place, although there are significant similarities, unfortunately, as well. And Czech, when she was first working in venture, uh, led her to form Diversity VC, I think as a reaction to a very homogenous industry. and you know, I don't want to put words, you know, she's kind of shocked by that. And so 
you know, what can she do about it? She's a very proactive woman. She founded Diversity VC. That kind of experience of us trying to back founders, different founders, led us to think we could probably do something. That was the core of like, wow, we're really aligned on this. Mm. There's a real kind of mission lock that we share. We didn't know what it was. It didn't sound sophisticated at all back then. But it was like, okay, let's see what happens. For our listeners, um, could you tell us a little bit more of what Diversity VC is? Yeah, sure. And, and just to be clear, you know, I'm not a part of Diversity VC team. I'm not a founder of Diversity VC. I'm just a big supporter in the background and, and, and fan. And, but Diversity VC, not that I can speak for it, is a, is a data and an advocacy uh, not-for-profit. So it, it exists to do several things, but the, to my mind, the most important things are to gather data that shines a light on the uh, diversity or lack thereof of the venture capital industry in the UK. A bit further afield now as well, but focus on the UK. And then to um, advocate for a more inclusive venture industry in the UK. So programs like Future VC, which are powered by Diversity VC, which are intern programs for giving people access to venture capital. But that's what Diversity VC does. And what it did for us is show us the numbers. It showed us the data as much as it was possible to do. It's an actually an imp- pretty imperfect site, but, but that kind of gave us insight, real quantifiable insight into what we had instinct for. But at that point in time, it was pretty rough and ready. So we left our jobs. You know, we um, started with a blank sheet of paper. You know, we did not want to do a rinse and repeat of the fund that we previously ran. Great fund though it is. We wanted to do our own thing. And I think that's also a really important message, I would say. It's really hard to think clearly about what that would be when you're at a fund already, like really hard because you're so influenced by what you're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. 12 hours a day. It's got to be authentic. And so this strategy of ADA, and I'll now take you through how it kind of came up. So it was really incremental. We we were really, our friends at Borderton gave us like some desk space in their uh, support area. And we had this whiteboard and we would write these crazy things on it. And there's some pictures of that in the video. And it was a, like a proper iterative process about building the strategy up. And so the strategy is around the fact that talent is evenly distributed, but, but VCs or capital sources are not, are not open to it, are not looking for it, are not accessible to that talent. So that was a huge spot for us. Like, wow, okay, we fundamentally don't believe that the founder of the next $10 billion tech business is going to look like Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or anybody else like that. Some will, but a vast majority won't. Um, And our job in a VC fund is to find those people and give them money. And so um, it's a very simple job, really. So that was part of the thesis. We also are heavily influenced by my time in investing in tech startups in the US. And what I learned if over there more than anything is conviction-based investing. So backing the nexus of a founder in a market and where that magic starts to happen, but nothing else, you know, no traction, no data to, to back up that, that view. And I kind of learned and had an instinct for that. Um, and so we, we wanted to go very early. So we're a pre-seed stage investor. We're a pre-series A investor technically, but what we love to do is that five, 600 K round pre, you know, post product, but pre any kind of traction. And there's a massive gap in the UK for that. All the VC firms say they do that. Hardly any of them do it, right? All the websites are saying we do that. They don't do those deals, right? And they'll meet founders and they'll take up founders' time and they'll put it into their system and they'll say they met everybody and they don't really, with a few exceptions, write checks at that stage. And so we wanted to do that. And then we also wanted to only invest in 
globally impactful businesses. So businesses that can be huge because that's how the, the venture capital fund model works when it's a small fund. You can only invest in stuff that's going to ultimately be put whatever label on it you want, worth a billion dollars, a fund returner, etc. But we're only investing in those moonshot style companies. So you put those three things together and we will invest in any kind of founder. You don't have to have experience in the industry of building a business in. You don't need to be a straight white male with a computer science degree. But if you are, we'll also back you. If you're globally ambitious to build something huge, and that's the thing, that's where we spend the most time trying to test that. That's the hardest thing to find, I would say. People talk about that in terms of, you know, the output of a characteristic like that is grit. It means somebody is so mission locked and authentically driven by what they're doing that they will, they will be gritty. <laughs> um, that's the hardest thing to really test for. But those three things are our, are our investment strategy. So we came up with that. And that took quite a long time to, to really nail that. We, we started pitching it. And again, another tip I would really say here is I learned from Czech. I saw her pitching people randomly, just like pitching a startup founder that she met in the borders of an office. Or, and I, I sort of thought, well, you know, what are you doing? Like this person's never <laughs> going to invest in our fund. But she was just learning as she goes, like practicing the pitch and, and gathering diverse input to her thesis, right, to test it. Uh, and then we put a deck together. The deck's been iterated 200 times or something by now. And we, and we just cast out trying to find investors. Um, we made all the mistakes you can make. We flew to Boston to meet um, MIT Endowment and Harvard Endowment. We were so excited, you know, sitting there in the back of the plane, like tapping away on our computers. So excited about it. Got into the meeting, told them about Ada Ventures, which we're thrilled they'd taken the meeting. And they said, well, we're a $60 billion endowment or we're, you know, whatever, $200 billion endowment. How big's your fund? <laughs> oh, well, it's actually, uh, it's really Did you small, say actually. How, how big do you want it to be? <laughs> well, you do get, that's it. You do get those things, Francesca. People say that it'd be much easier if you're raising a hundred million. And I don't think it is actually. I think that's a kind of flippant thing. People say it'd be easy. But one thing you do do by raising a small fund is you, you cut off like 98% of the capital market for your, for your business, for your fund, because, because of that point. Most of the capital is concentrated in very, very large pools and they just can't do small tickets. Mm. But, but so we did, we, did, we, we did that, but we got in these rooms, right? And that's the, so the, the kind of, we learned a lot of things along the way. And one of them is we had this sort of three-step process, which, which took a lot of, you know, mistakes to refine. But I would pass it on to your listeners and say, you've got to, the first step, you've got to get in the room. You've got to do whatever it takes. And if you don't have that hustle or desire, you probably aren't trying to raise a fund that you really love and care about, or you're probably not an entrepreneurial VC, you're probably a great career VC. Then you've just got to bring your freaking A game into that room. And that means not get all jumped up and highly caffeinated and charge in there. Like, do your prep, research the thing. This is where we learned, by the way, by flying to Boston and pitching $100 billion endowments. We could have saved ourselves the trouble. (laughs) We were never going to invest in Ada Ventures 1. And so do that prep, right? Try and you can find out a lot about people, right? Try and find out about the people you're meeting. Try and send them things, materials in advance so they're well prepared. Try and you know, do those kind of things. And then when you've done that and you've brought your A game and you've done as well as you can in the meeting, the third step is you just have to resist the urge to try and overly control the outcome. Mm. Don't over control it. Follow up all the time. Oh, well, you know. And so though that once we landed, that kind of helped us, and we just stuck to that and kept reminding each other about that. We had the great benefit of this vision for Ada that we both 
loved. And that's ultimately what the LPs bought into. Um, kind of unproven VCs seem to be genuinely great team. And there's a lot of team risk in backing emerging or first time funds. I think they felt through referencing and what have you that we were a pretty bonded team and we were proven into that in that respect. But also this mission that we just loved and that bifurcated the LPs really quickly. People were like, you're going to do what? You're going to invest in, in who? Somebody said to us, show me the data that proves women can make money. I mean, we, you know, we have heard it all, like, or not at all, but we've heard, you know, we, we, we were roughed up. And that's fine. People don't believe in the thesis. That meant it was one meeting. Didn't waste any more their time or our time. That's okay. You've got to be prepared for that. I say now, I wasn't at the time. I probably cried after that meeting. But like, you know, I would say that now, that you've got to be prepared to put yourself out there. And But then we met LPs that absolutely saw the world the way we do and saw it as a big financial arbitrage opportunity, quite frankly. Like ultimately, they can love you and love what you're doing, but it's different from that and cutting a check or, or signing an LPA, a limited partnership agreement that binds them to investing in the fund. They, and, and they all did that because they felt they could make a lot of money out of the investment in, in Ada Ventures. And um, you know, that history will show whether or not we're able to do that. But that was the ultimate, that was the main decision they were making. They, they believed our data and our story around there are all these incredibly talented entrepreneurs out there that other VCs are not funding and we're going to fund them. And we've got the experience to have the right funnels and filters that we're going to back the right entrepreneurs. They're just going to look and sound very different to what you're used to in the tech industry, by and large. Just on the, the point about, you know, the way that you make those investors cut the check is because you convince them that they'll make money from it. I totally get that. I know what you're saying. I just wondered what you think about the point of view around investing in more diverse entrepreneurs not necessarily because it quote unquote makes business sense, but because it's the right thing to do. Like, how do you think that those two thought pieces kind of work together? Yeah, I think it just it is the right thing to do as well. And I think that that helps some of our investors. A couple of our investors, more than a couple of our investors, are self-described as impact investors. And impact is a loaded term these days. Like it's a great word. Like you can have it. I love it. But it's a loaded term these days because it's, you know, it implies or there's a negative correlate or implication that you're doing this purely because it's the right thing to do. You're not interested in the financial uh, benefits of this. And we didn't mind either way. We just said, if you want to say that we're an impact fund, you can. It's not how we describe ourselves, but we're going to have a ton of social impact by our strategy. And that's cool. That's great. But the two, you know, add, add up to three, basically. Like it's just a win all around. And it absolutely is the right thing to do. But the initial, the pitch was all about, this is going to make everybody a lot of money. The founders uh, and, and the LPs in our fund. And, and I think that's mega important. You know, I've looked at funds where, and Jack and I thought about this, you know, back to the design phase of this fund. Shall we just back diverse founders? Should we just back women? You know, what should we, you know, we went through all these debates. And, I, and ultimately the reason why we didn't do that is because VCs are, a data set business it's a fill the funnel as big as you can business and we didn't want to produce a fund that didn't have as much going in the top as possible and therefore not have the outcome we needed to have as a fund because then everybody will say there you go i told you you can't make money by investing in diverse founders and secondly the empowerment point is really important i don't want any founder backed by ada ventures to feel yeah, I was back because I'm, I'm a black founder or I'm a female founder or, you know, I'm a neurodiverse founder and that's why I got money from Ada Ventures. Like, that's no way. 
like you're getting money from Aid Adventures because you are, in our opinion, at the time of writing the check, 100% the best person to build that business that we believe can go on to be incredibly impactful, global, many billions in size, you know, just like just like any other super ambitious fund investing at our stage. Well, I think that's brilliant, and I'm, I I totally agree with you. And I suppose that's, in a way, what we're trying to do with a little part in in Associated is that we want to interview people from lots of different backgrounds, um, so that hopefully listeners might resonate with one or two people that might have had a similar story or, or can relate to them so it's it's great to hear that you have that approach of let's talk to many people as possible to understand them as people refine those people that just you know the obvious choice so to speak um, but they are by all means are very welcome as well but you mentioned um, filtering and funneling and I'd love to learn a little bit more about your scout program and actually how we we ended up meeting was through one of your scouts so a big shout out to Rockman thank you very much Rockman for, for making this podcast happen the legend that is Rockman Law um, what a guy so a lot of Ada is about was about tr- trying things, trying ideas, and seeing could we do it differently. We really actually wanted to do a different fund structure, like it's a two and twenty ten year you know standard structure. But we didn't want to do, do that. We thought about doing something. In the end, like you've got to give the customers the product they want to buy, and in our case, that is that fund. That will come later, I suspect. But we also recognise the great privilege of having a blank sheet of paper. And one of the things that came out of that was the scout program. It's a different sort of scout program. Scout programs in the States tend to be large funds giving small checkbooks to well-connected, networked entrepreneurs in the Valley. Um, and that seems to work pretty well. Like, you know, that's how you get into Uber if you're Sequoia and you know Jason Calacanis. Like, that's fine. That's a proven model in an ecosystem that's, that's as dense as that one. Our, obviously, view on the world is completely different. And it's about two things really it's about an edge for ada and our scout program is now over 50 scouts our scouts are all or typically i should say because there's variants in here but typically an ada scout is a leader of a diverse organization typically not for profit but it doesn't have to be within startups so uh, and again there's flexibility so some of the people are, are you know are slightly different to that but they they all bring uh, access to a community that we want access to as a venture fund, but it's a two-way street. And so the second part of our scouting program is about some of this, actually where we started around, you know, what will the future small funds look like? Well, they're going to come from our scouts, I think, because it's also about education and it's about sharing the VC process with those with those individuals, which we try to do as much as possible. It's not perfect, you know, but as much as you can do in a WhatsApp group and giving hopefully reason most of the time timely and constructive feedback on the decks that they send in and so it is about sharing ada ada is never meant to be matt and check we want to share it as much as is kind of practically possible and so the scout community is about that and that means education and transparency really um for that community but um yeah they the scouts bring deals to us from their community exclusively sign a contract to do that to give us a period of exclusivity if we invest in one of those deals, we pay them a finder's fee, pay them £5,000. They can take it in cash um, or they can take it, uh, we can try to structure it in equity in the company, complying with all the various you know, fundraising and tax legislation. 
And we also give them carry in the fund on that based on that company. So it's a very fair deal for both sides. We get access to an underlying community of well over 10,000 entrepreneurs, whether they are in jobs at Ben River community, but entrepreneurially minded, or whether they are startup founders themselves already, we get access to that, exclusive access to that. That's a real asset for us. And we try to do that in the right way and make it a fair deal. So they're paid, they do get carry if we do the deal, and we try to be open and transparent all the way through the process. We don't always get it all right because it's months old, you know? I mean, you know, none, of the, none of this is perfectly polished with a cherry on top, but that's our scout program. Uh, and it will evolve, but it's, yeah, it's working incredibly well. One of the first two deals the fund did uh, in February is scout sourced. We are, fingers crossed, about to give a term sheet tonight, tomorrow, to another scout source deal, I hope. But um, it's working. And the LPs loved it because, and actually back to answering a, my, a question that I think I was sort of hinted at earlier was, what did the LPs say when we kind of got out there with the fund, which we talked a little bit about, but they want to, the institutional LPs, right? The, the, the bigger family offices, the fund of funds, the, you know, the people who experienced fund investors, they need to see something that's differentiated. That's yeah. like their drug, right? That's what they have to have. And then they have to have kind of proof points that, and our scout program is absolutely part of that for us. And, and the LPs that have made the decision within probably an hour or half an hour of meeting us to invest, and then have to go, like all decisions, go and justify it in the back of their mind. The scout program was one of the features of Ada Ventures that would have enabled them to do that. Like, so yeah, this is really differentiated. It's a very differentiated strategy. It's backing founders we're not going to get access to through other funds. And oh, by the way, in their investment committee, there's this scout program. And 20% of our deal flow comes through the scout program. It you know, varies month to month, but it's, but it's about 20%. Did you take inspiration on the structure of that program from anywhere? Um, we must have done because nothing's really original. But it was, it was, it was pretty um, unique in the UK. And so we must have learned about it a bit from the US. You know, you think about Jason Calacanis and his book Angel, which is well worth reading, by the way. But it was a fairly unique thing at the time we put it together in terms of how to build that volume of engagement and that volume of, of community. And we iterated on it. We talked to the scouts a lot about like, how, you know, is £5,000 the right? It took a lot of work to figure out how to get them carry. That was really hard. We didn't have that originally, but we knew we kind of wanted to do that. But it took a lot of legal work to, to do that. Mm. It was the carry that I was interested in. That's the bit that I don't think I've heard of another fund doing. And I just, I was going to say that to get the legals of that done and the structure is proves the commitment to like cutting them a fair deal. Yeah. But also I'd share that with anyone who's managing a fund who wants to, wants to do it. So it's not like, it's not IP that I'm scared of not, uh, we've created it, but um happy. Yeah. I'd share that with anybody who wants to do that with their fund. Amazing. You heard it here. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Matt, I'm curious to, to know, obviously, you said those two companies that you recently invested in that came through this GAP program. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, sure. Um, and actually, I should also say we did a scout deal before we closed the fund as well, which is a super fun one to talk about because I can absolutely get busted for mansplaining and things like that with that one. So that'll be kind of much more fun to talk about. But um, <laughs> When we were fundraising, we also were investing on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. And that is mega, mega for us. We were fundraising for about 15 months or so, which actually was radically shorter than 
you should budget for and that we probably well initially we thought we'd be done in six months <laughs> that's because <laughs> we didn't we, we didn't know anything right six months in we didn't have anything we realized it was going to be a bit longer um but we also were doing deal by deal we did 10 we did 10 spvs we did three series b companies because um founders wanted us involved again and, and they were just amazing companies but we did seven deals that were really illustrative of the aid adventure strategy and that was an amazing like fillet to our fundraising process because yeah. um the lps could look at uh, effectively fund zero and so they could have something in the track record to diligence and look at and say all oh, these kind of companies are getting the fund yeah like that a was massive yeah, yeah like absolutely a, poc yeah. fund right and with us, we did, I think it was 2.5 million pounds, 10 companies hustling, just getting people rounded up and backing people individually in the UK using EIS. And that was amazing. And I would, again, like happy to talk people through how to do that one-to-one if they want. That really helped us. And so to answer your question, Francesca, um, the first one we did from a scout came before we closed the fund, right? So that meant the fund got off to a flying start and we closed it. Uh, and again, that was a benefit to the LP. So like we're already in the market, we're already logging deals, but like it enabled us to act as if, as my sister says, right? My sister's a, a coach and she, you know, you've got to act as if, and people could be easily forgiven for thinking, oh, Aid Adventures is shiny and Matt and Checker, you know, successful VCs and all the rest of it now. And, but let me tell you, when we left Gainful Employment and we're out there on our own, by our own choice. So again, I don't want any small violins, but like you take, you take a knock to your confidence. Like you're in a very different place. And you're like, should I be doing this? And so you need things that can give you confidence to act as if, because the LPs will smell that like a shark smells blood in the water, right? Like they know that they are looking for that as we all are. We're buying anything, right? Do I feel confidence in this person? And our ability to write those small checks on a deal by deal basis allowed us to act as if. So check and I ran the entire week as if we had a fund. So we had deal flow logging system, our Monday afternoon deal flow meetings. Didn't have a fund. We ran the whole show as if we did, and that gave us confidence when we were talking to our piece. And that was big learning. Happy to talk to people more about it. So, amazing scout called Mandy, who was part of running a program down in Exeter called Exeter Velocities, I think was the name of it. It was a kind of future of cities style accelerator down in Exeter. And Mandy, one of our first scouts to sign up, and she called us up about this company. I think this is an amazing Ada company. The company at the time was called Polypop. Uh, and it's now recently rebranded and that, that is out there now. It's called Planera. If you go to planera.care. Uh, and that is a, and this is where I can like, you know, smile as like, you, you can like bust me for mansplaining. Cause like, <laughs> cause Czech used to, we'd be talking about this with LPs. Tell me about an Ada company, right? I'd be like, all right, let me tell you about Polypop, which is a um, completely water dispersible um, sanitary pad. And so I used to like talking about this <laughs> Um, and Czech would just give me so much shit about it afterwards. Um, <laughs> completely justified me. But the, um, an interesting story, the Polypop is a material science company, really. It's a really difficult thing to produce absorbent, you know, dissolvable material for that role, for that job, right? But the reason why it's an Ada deal, Polypop has got core, hardcore IP in there, Planera as is. So it's got, you know, patent pending technology around that that material that they've created and layered. It's a material science company, effectively. That's why we love it, right? We love what it can do. We love what it can do for women in the, um, in the sort of developed world, if you will, but, but much more fascinatingly, women in the emerging economies where there's real stigmatism about that or other materials that are not fit for purpose of being used for that job. 
So what a company that, what an impact that company can have. It takes a lot longer to build it because you've got machinery and tooling and it's, it's not a classic VC SaaS style or D to C style business. So you've really got to wrap your mind around, around that stuff. But we love that. So we're not just looking for underestimated founders, you know, overlooked founders. We're also looking for underestimated and overlooked markets <clears throat> and products. Now that we may prove to be stupid, you know, like I'm not saying that, you know, we figured it all out, but we like that kind of deal. There's, there's hard intellectual property that can be, that can act as a real barrier to entry in that sector. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a great story, I think, to, as you said, that, you know, you were able to prove your idea alongside raising the fund and, you know, identify a company through someone that isn't you know that involved with venture capital who found someone that really you know met all the criteria for for ada it wouldn't necessarily have come forward previously um, or might not have got the attention they rightly deserved and hopefully um mandy has obviously got an awful lot of learning from you in exchange as as well as that five thousand pounds but i suppose what i'm trying to get at is shall we go on to question time Yes, love to. Amazing. So thank you very much to everyone that has put forward their questions for Matt, but we've decided upon Marta's question. So thank you very much, Marta, for submitting your question. And her question to you, Matt, is, I'm curious to discover Matt's opinion on the current situation of US tech stocks and to know if he thinks we'll experience another dot-com bubble. It would also be interesting to know if he thinks this would impact funding to tech companies in any way. Amazing question to ask a private company investor who, you know, I've only ever really lost money in the stock market. So like, <laughs> but, but I, it's a multi, there's multiple layers to this. So I heavily caveat everything that I say, but I'm not a professional stock market investor. I don't really understand the stock market. I analyze companies in their isolation and the market is a separate animal. Right. So, you know, uh, I'm an investor in Tesla. Right. Uh, I don't have loads of stock market investments, but I, I'm an investor in Tesla. That's probably right at the heart of, um, of Marta's question, a stock like that. Um, I'm an investor in Tesla because and this will answer part of the question. I say that really grandiosely that I'm an investor in Tesla. Like I've got, you know, a couple of grand invested in Tesla. <laughs> I'm, not like, <laughs> I'm not more above it um, because um, I think it's a category owner. I think it owns electric and hopefully, you know, battery power um, in the same way that Airbnb has kind of created and owned a category. And I think that that's what we're trying to invest in ADA. I sort of understand that category defining businesses will take a large part of the value from that sector. So I, I guess I'm going to answer this question with my sort of how do, why do, how do I look at, at Tesla and stocks like that? I think that to answer it in reverse as well, are we in a bubble? I genuinely subscribe to the this time it's different theory, which can get totally shot down by investors that know more about bubbles than me. But I really, I just subscribe to it. And the reason for that is I first started out in VC in the summer of 2000 when I did an internship completely freaking randomly. <laughs> Didn't even know what venture capital was, but ended up in an internship in a New York based VC fund in the summer of 2000. Retrospectively, we now know that the NASDAQ market had peaked, the bubble had peaked in March or April of that year. We sort of knew the bubble was deflating a bit at that time, but it hadn't burst. But the issue back then, and why I say I'll answer the bubble bit first, is back then, these 
companies, these startups you'd meet in a venture capital fund in the States were about building the infrastructure or they were about the vision and people were buying into these wild stories, you know, about being, about being able to do what we now take for granted. Like, you know, one click ordering arrives at your door the next day or the same day. And I think it's a classic thing. So I'm a very amateur student of like macroeconomics and like very, like I just read a few books about it. <laughs> and um, one of the books that's great to read about this sort of thing is, I think it's called Tycoons. Um, and I really recommend it to Marta and anyone else who's asking about this stuff because it talks about the JP Morgan, uh, Rockefeller, Carnegie era of the US building the railroads and the oil companies. And first time they built the railroads, the investors lost their shirts because you know, there was no business model on top of it that could make money, that could recoup that level of capital outlay. And that's what happened with the first bubble. So people put the satellites in the sky and laid the fiber under the oceans but the business model wasn't there because wasn't, there weren't enough customers and there weren't enough people buying stuff in the volume there is today. And that's kind of fundamentally why I say this time it's different. And so whilst there will be massive market fluctuations, as like just look at Tesla and big tech companies in the last week, right? This is now the 8th of September, so it will go out later. But if you go back and look at the charts for those companies, it's volatility madness, right? And so, you know, whilst you're going to get that in the stock market, I do believe that technology is a kind of fundamental part of all of our lives now as consumers, as businesses, and how, and as how we interact with the government. Look at the way the NHS is engaging with technology in a way it's never done before in my career anyway. And so now is a, yeah, I would say this, but it's a great time to be a tech investor. And actually, I think that the little I know about the stock market, I've only got money in big tech companies in the stock market. I don't have any, anywhere else. And people could accuse me of being undiversified and all the rest of that stuff. But that seems to have bifurcated from the rest of the stock market, you know, and that's because the demand is there for those products is massively. And so I don't think we're in a bubble. I also, and then I would say the second part of the question around how does it impact funding? It definitely impacts funding. And I think it impacts funding in lots of ways that, you know, I don't understand, but in the ways that I do understand it, which is through my LPs lens, LPs who invest in venture funds, and I'm doing a post about this around, venture economics, which I'll try and get finished soon, where LPs put you know, maybe up to 5% of their assets into early stage venture, something like that, it could be less more. The rest of it is in the stock market or in the bond market or in the real estate market. And to the extent that their stock market positions, which is probably the biggest part of their portfolio, to the extent that they fluctuate quite significantly, that will impact how much capital they can put into funds and that will impact down the line, actually a few years later, how much we have got to invest in tech companies in our particular markets. And if you look at as an example, it's not tech market, but closely related, the Neil Woodford situation last year, I think it was last year, that was because he'd invested in a lot of private companies in the fund and the stock positions took a, you know, a nosedive in, in terms of valuation in the public markets. And that meant he was over-invested in private companies. He could only do a certain percentage of his fund in private companies. And as the value of the non-private bit went down, so the percentage of the private in the overall fund went up and it breached his rules. And so the way that applies to a venture fund is if the value of an LP's holdings in the market goes down, they've still got to make the capital commitments out of their private allocation that they've got to make. But that private allocation is now a much greater percentage because it doesn't mark to market every day, the private, the venture capital commitments. So that, that percentage of their overall holdings goes up as a percentage and they might breach their exposure rules they've got capital commitments that, that are funded over five ten years and so it really will affect the venture market it'll be a big delay on it 
but yes, it, the tech, what happens in the tech, tech stock market will affect venture capital funds and therefore startups. It would just be quite a lag. Mm, I mean, that's, that's a very interesting answer and congratulations again, Marta. That means you'll, you'll be grabbing a coffee with Matt to, to discuss your question further, perhaps, Ooh, and anything wow. else that you might have. So thank you very much, Matt, for, for agreeing to, to grab a coffee with her. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, and that leads me quite nicely onto my, my next question, which is, are you guys hiring at the moment? Whether that's for a opponent role at Ada or, or for the Scout program? Um, yes, really, to all of that. I mean, we, we're not hiring on the investment team at Ada. You know, just get that out there and the reason for that is because it's a two-person partnership it's an equal partnership as i've said the lps have backed you know check and matt to see what they can do and right now we're just getting towards a flow state of like working and investing and we don't want to disrupt that we want to hire an investment team and you know probably replace ourselves you know like in the future absolutely it's not we're not holding on too tight but but for right now it's not the right thing to do so we are not hiring on the investment team but we are doing some other things so we're working on how to do an inclusive intern program you know we're working with diversity vc on that we are the scouts we're always hiring on scouts we're putting together a better way of doing that it's about iterating on our scout program so we're putting a, a web form together that will go live for scouts, which will be illustrative of what we're looking for um, and allow anybody to apply. So it'll be totally open. We're always getting approached by people because we took a stance of like our email addresses are on our website. We are accessible and we are. So people can get in touch proactively. And I think that's something I'd always feel about getting into a venture firm. And it, it, it is about showing that hustle and, and, and desire and fit and lodge. A lot of people say, oh, I really want to be in VC, but haven't thought it through or haven't why they've approached you. It's just a blanket email. And that's not really appealing to us. We are going to be hiring for other roles within Ada, within the firm. You know, with Czech and I just assessing like right now, what do we need and what can we afford? It is a tiny firm. Um, what can we afford? But yeah, we are going to be hiring um, outside of the investment team within the firm. And so approach us if you want to job in, in VC that you feel you're aligned with our values and our, and our strategy and you don't want to be an investor. It's not, we're not going to hire roles that are pathways to being investors. So yeah, long-winded way of saying yes, but no. <laughs> it's very exciting. And as you said, I think it's so great that you're like, you know, if you've got an idea or approach us, and I think that's from what I've spoken to a lot of people, that that's actually a really great way of, of getting a role in, in VC. And it's not just yeah. restricted to the the flashy investment role there's so many other uh roles within vc that could be even more rewarding for you as a person so yeah think creatively um but i think that that draws me on to one point that you mentioned uh, right at the beginning of of our conversation and it's something that i struggle with is that level of like self-confidence and self-doubt and you said that when you were working at a p fund that you weren't very good and i wanted to pick up on that because it's like well why weren't you very good or <laughs> was it just a self-doubt thing very very fair question and it's nice that you say was it just a self-doubt thing rather than are you just being self-depreciating it was very much a self-doubt thing and it was because i didn't have you know a two one degree uh i had a two two degree and at the time like i don't know how important that is anymore i hope it's much less important it certainly is to me when i'm hiring somebody i don't care if you don't have a degree i don't care if you finish high school but I had a 2-2 degree in a world where everybody had first or, or two ones from top universities. And so I probably had a lot of imposter syndrome, I imagine, as a young person like that. 
I still do, if I'm honest with you, about a little bit of that, you know, and because everybody in VC seems to have all that, like, Czech's got a yeah. first from Cambridge, doesn't stand, doesn't stand out in VC, like, they've all got it, right? I yeah. really don't. And I think, actually, you know what, that's an important thing to sort of just dwell on, like, I'm, you know, I know a lot of your listeners have already got great jobs, and everything, but like, if I can do, if I can raise a fund, you know, I kind of think it's a lot more achievable than maybe people think. And so when I was at a PE fund, I didn't have a good degree and probably did have some sort of self-doubt around that, but genuinely wasn't very good at it because I didn't really, I didn't really care enough about money. Sounds kind of an odd thing for a venture capitalist to say, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly competitive. I'm very, very ambitious for this fund financially for our investors, the return. I want to put it on the map and show that this strategy can really pay off. Um, but but a lot of the people I met in private equity were more, they were just, that's fine, but they were just really driven by money. And, and that, that the reason why that's important in private equity is you're creating a lot of the value through the structure, through the financial engineering and analysis of the company and the capital structure. And I'm really glad I took that time. I've got, I've got better financial skills at a lot of VCs, probably. I don't really know. There's no competition. But I, I find in early stage tech, I've got decent financial skills. And so I'm grateful for that. And also for the wider context it gave me within the alternative assets uh, space, because I did funder funds as well. And that was an amazing learning experience. And all of that undoubtedly made me a better VC than I would have been. But I don't think I was very good at it because I didn't ultimately care enough about money. And I think to really squeeze the juice out of a balance sheet and you know you drive that business towards a higher multiple of EBIT on sale and do all the stuff you've got to do as a PE guy or girl, you probably love money a lot I think I don't know that's what it seemed like to me I didn't really feel like I fitted in fit in with that and so therefore that's why I would say genuinely I wasn't that good what I mean by that really more is it wasn't a great fit for me as an industry whereas early stage like really high risk pre-traction investing is a great fit for me I love I absolutely love it I know my place in that world now I haven't done for a long time but now I know what my role is and I feel really like just so excited about it you know when we were fundraising check had this sticker on her laptop to this like ancient mac i was like begging her to and it would whir away for like <laughs> minutes at a time drive me insane and um but the thing that i loved about it she had this weird like post-it thing she'd torn off and it um and it just said north star on it uh and north star is ada ada lovelace is our north star and every time she opened her laptop in a meeting it'd be like north star this scrappy bit of paper stuck to her laptop and um but that's, you know, I love it. I love Ada. I love what we do with early stage, back in the early stage companies like this. And this is like a calling in many respects, but private equity wasn't for me. Amazing. Well, um, I can't really think of a better way to wrap the episode up. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on. We really enjoyed having you. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Really appreciate you coming on and letting us probe you on the journey you've taken to raise a fund. I feel like this is going to be such an invaluable resource for our listeners and I, I don't know if we could have gotten such a an honest tale from from many other places so really really just want to say like really appreciate you letting us do that likewise i'm so appreciative of what you guys are doing we're very aligned in our missions and so if it's of use to the listeners then i'm super happy about that amazing and thank you so much for our lovely listeners for tuning in as always please do send any questions you might have to associatedpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on twitter at associated underscore pod and yes please do check out our notion page because we'll be 
referencing all the things that Matt chatted about that you can read through or watch. Um, and thanks again for joining. Bye. Bye.